Well, church, as always, I am thankful uh, to be able to be up here, be able to open up the Bible with you, right? And we're going to be continuing along in our study of the book of Philippians. So if you do have one of those Black Pew Bibles or your own Bible or a scripture journal or an app, whatever you've got, I encourage you to get to the book of Philippians. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 980, 980. And it's such a privilege of mine and a joy of mine to be able to open up the word with you again. Now, as you are finding your way there, you guys will notice, sometimes I point this out, sometimes I do, like today, is the title of today's sermon is called When Things Happen, right? When Things Happen. And I hope, uh, before I read the text here in a little bit, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. When I say when things happen, because I want to acknowledge that we live in a fallen, sinful world, right? If you haven't wondered that in the last 18 months, I think even this week has reminded us of that. And I know that it can be incredibly difficult and stressful. You guys know this. I've talked to many of you this week. You know this firsthand. That there are things going on in your life, things that have happened this week that you never thought would ever happen, that you never thought that you'd have to discuss in your living room. Things that maybe life events, maybe just the, the, the product of living in a sinful world. It's okay, baby Hazel. I know you're so excited. <laughs> of when we live in a sinful world, it will have ramifications. We will deal with the consequence of that. But I want us to point to to the word this morning because I do believe that God's word, even though that this portion of scripture was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi thousands of years ago, it still speaks to the human heart, which we all need. You see, I don't need to simply try to show you that the Bible is relevant. I just need to uphold and show you the relevancy of the Bible. That everything in which we are about to walk through deals with the human heart. Now, certainly, there are situations and contexts that I will explain. But every single one of us comes in here feeling the effects of a fallen world. And what does God have to do with that? What has he done about that? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look about how the gospel, right, the the good work, the good news of, of the person and work of Jesus, how it actually enters into every single one of our stories this morning, just as much as it's affecting the Apostle Paul here in Philippians 1. And if you guys are note takers, I want to just point out a couple of different things where I'm going to point you to this morning from our text. So we're going to simply walk through verses 12 through 18 in our time. But here are the two things that I'm going to point out. Two things that I believe that Paul is trying to get every single one of the Christians that he is writing to in Philippi and by extension to us today, what do we do about suffering? So point number one is Paul is leading the church to when suffering comes, when circumstances affect your life in a way that you never thought they would, what do you do? What do you do as a Christian? What do you do? How do you approach suffering? How do you view suffering? The second thing is what about the pain or a particular suffering of when a brother or sister in the church, in the faith, hurts you? What do you do then? 
You know, it's one thing to experience pain from people that don't know you. It's a whole nother thing to experience pain, maybe even a sense of betrayal from those that you would count as family, and especially family in the faith. I know many of you, we've all have those deep wounds in our life, deep wounds that are often these robbers of joy, whether it's circumstances, things that did not go according to plan, or maybe just somebody that we thought we could trust, someone that we poured our life into, but yet feel like they've turned our back on it today. What do you do with those two situations? That's what Paul was writing about this morning as we're looking through verses 12 through 18, which here's the thing. I, I, I think that we all can relate to either one of those, if not both of them. But let's go ahead and just stop again. And I'm going to read verses 12 through 18. But before I do that, I just want to pray one more time. You guys can tell, as Justin mentioned, we're, we're a church that prays a lot. And the reason we do that is not to just, we don't know what to say if we're trying to make transitions in time, but rather we do want to come to the one who's able to take these words and make them, make us alive in Christ because of them, because they point to who Jesus is. So if you guys could just pray for me as I pray for you. Well, Father, we do want to just take another moment to acknowledge that you're a good God. You're a good God despite any circumstances that we have in our life, despite any hurt that we have in our life. You're not a God that forgets about that. You're not a God that pretends like it doesn't exist. So God, I pray for each single person in the room this morning, and even uh, by God's grace, those who, who are sick but able to tune in online. God, I pray that you would allow this text, these promises these truths about who you are and what you're capable of doing just illuminate in their hearts this morning. God, I pray for our kids. I pray for our teachers as they're walking through the same promises that their moms and dads are. And God, that you would shape all of our hearts, even the littlest of them. And that every single one of us, Lord, we want to walk out of here loving you, Jesus, far more than we first walked in. But that can only happen because of you. So God, we lift up all these things in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let me go ahead and just read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 for us. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, verse 16. The latter do it out of love, but knowing, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambitions, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we, are, we say that because we are thankful to have God's word. All right, so a little context, just in case you're just jumping in with us. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And as we briefly saw a couple weeks ago, Paul is actually writing this letter from the context that he's in prison. He's been imprisoned in a Roman prison 
For doing what? Do you remember why Paul is in prison? He is in prison because he has been preaching the gospel. That he has been going around planting churches, talking about Jesus, talking about sin, talking about the redemption that can only be found in Christ. And what has happened? Well, that has got him arrested. That has made him a very unpopular person in the world. And so he has been arrested for that. See, because Paul unashamedly talked about Jesus being the Savior, the only Savior that knew that we were dead in our sins, that every single one of us were dead in our sins, and but that Savior, Jesus, went to the cross to pay for those sins on the cross, making full atonement for them. So Jesus has been the highlight of Paul's ministry. And just as Jesus was hated, so was Paul because of it. So Paul is in prison. If you guys want to see the details of that, Acts chapter 21 is where you can actually find this, this arrest of the Apostle Paul. Now, going back to Philippians, Paul has been taking some time to this church to explain to them how much they mean to him. That this church was probably one of the very first churches that Paul planted. One of the very first churches in which Paul was just able to be a part from the very beginning. To see people come to faith. And he's been praying for them. He's been telling them how much he's been encouraged by their support of him. But now Paul is going to take a moment. He's going to start to talk about his situation. He's been focused in on them and for right reason. That's where his priority has been. But now he's going to just kind of give a glimpse into his own life. Because this church wants to know, how are you doing, Paul? How are you doing? So look at verse 12 with me. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers... That it was happened to me as really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here's the first big idea that I want to point our attention to. The first big idea is what kind of perspective are you going to have of your life when circumstances come that you did not foresee, maybe did not expect, maybe don't want? What are you going to do with those? What are you going to do with those challenges, those trials? Because Paul has been placed in jail, and not any jail, a Roman jail. Now, there's a couple of different ways that we can look at this historically. Sometimes a Roman jail was basically a hole in the ground that you were placed into. Now, this was true in Paul in, in, in certain parts of his imprisonment, but another part of it was you would basically be on this house arrest too. And when you were on house arrest in this Roman jail, for like the top tier of inmates, you would be put on this, this constant watch where you would likely even be chained to what are known as these imperial guards, these Roman soldiers. And they would basically have a guard chained to you for a couple of different reasons. One, they didn't trust you, thought you were a, a threat to escape. Got this for a moment, church. What if, if this is the first time we're learning about Paul's kind of imprisonment, he's talking about it, what is his emphasis on? What does he immediately go to when he says, hey, I want you to know this, brothers, that my imprisonment is really hard. I hate it. I don't like it. It's really bad. It's, it's you know, I'm in a hole most of the time. I'm chained to this guard all the time. He doesn't talk about himself still. You see the emphasis in which he goes to. What does he go to? The first thing that he does, he's like, I want you to know that God is still at work that God is still moving despite this unforeseen circumstance, which is very different than the way that we talk about suffering, isn't it? Right? If something were to happen to you, 
Are you quick to complain about the circumstances that got you there? Are you quick to blame others? Are you quick to just always talk about it in a way that there's no reason why God would have this happen in my life? You see, for Paul, his perspective on this imprisonment is altogether different than I think, personally, I would probably think about an imprisonment. Now, notice that Paul is not asking why. He's also not asking if he's done anything wrong, which is an important aspect of suffering or unforeseen circumstances. Now, let me do it, make a quick note here. I'm not talking about there's not consequences for sin. Right? There might be situations that you get into and you're in those because of your sin. And that's not, but that's not the case here. I hope you know that. Paul is not in prison because he has sinned. He's not in prison because he has sinned. Why is Paul in prison then? Because he's been a preacher of the gospel. He's been preaching Christ. He's in prison because he lives in a fallen, sinful world. And Paul never makes the case that his imprisonment is based off of something that he did or did not do in a negative way. Okay. <clears throat> Even this week, Church, I was talking to just a member about um, another just hard situation that, that somebody's in. And what we were, what we were talking through is, is talking about how sometimes those situations, sometimes when God leaves you in those situations, it feels like, that you don't know how you're going to get out of, you can start to ask, and, and people have wrongly been taught that the reason why suffering is persisting in someone's life is because they lack faith. Is they lack faith. That somehow it's about you. It's about what you are doing. It's about if you just had enough faith, then God would not have you in this situation. Or God would have answered your prayers by now. God would have intervened. He would have taken this away, whatever this is in your life. Church, that's just not the Bible. That's just not what God's word says. That suffering. And remember, I'm not talking about the consequences of sin. But certain types of suffering are not against God's will. It's not because God is surprised by it. It's not because God doesn't know that's going on. He's just waiting for you to have enough faith. It's not about you. And how, you don't have that power. Friends, we know that suffering, and we may not know the why, we might not know the when, we might not know the how long, but we do know this from the word of God. That for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here's what I want to point out. There's nothing in that passage that says the, the things that God is working together for good, those things have to be a delight. It might be really challenging things that God is working together for your good. Doesn't mean it's pain-free. And so we have to get out of our mind because we have been discipled in this in so many ways outside of the church that circumstances or suffering is against what God has for you. It's somehow against the plan of God for your life. That the, the true plan of God is completely worry-free or trouble-free or pain-free. That's just not the case. That God's will could absolutely be you going through a time of trial. And you know how I know this? The ultimate case for me? Jesus who did everything according to God's will. And do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross? 
Do you remember the suffering that he knew was coming? Do you remember when he prayed and was asking God the Father, God, is there any other way, right? Is there any other way for you to save your people, for sins to be atoned for, for the dead in sin to be made alive in God? Is there any other way for my, besides me having to suffer in their place? Do you remember what God the Father responded with in that moment? Silence. Silence. Because there was no other, no other way. And so it's entirely possible, church, that there might be seasons of suffering in your life that is exactly what God has preordained. That God knew and knew that it was good and knew that it was perfect. Doesn't mean it makes it any easier. You know this. But it certainly gives us perspective on how to go, okay, Lord, I see what you're doing. Maybe I don't understand it. Maybe I don't agree with it. But you're God and I'm not. See, I think the church in Philippi is just like us. And we can just simply question if things are going wrong in a worldly sense. That we can say, this is, God's, God must be somehow thwarted in this moment. He must be restricted of what he actually wants to do. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. What has happened to me has been used to serve, to advance the gospel so that it might be known throughout the whole imperial guard. Paul is able to see how his imprisonment has actually been something that God is using in and through to accomplish his purposes. And it says to advance the gospel to the imperial guard. Now notice about the imperial guard. So not only were they chained to Paul, but there was, the imperial guard was basically around 9,000 soldiers. 9,000 soldiers. Now, it doesn't mean that you know, all 9,000 were necessarily chained to the Apostle Paul, but they would go in rotations, right? They would, they would chain in and chain out based off a shift. And, these, and you have to also know this, that these were like the top military guys, right? These were, some have, historians have said, basically, these were like Caesar's personal bodyguards, right? The secret service of the near ancient world, the top guys, Right? the Marines of the days, or the Navy SEALs, or whatever you determine, whatever is the top. These guys were the top. And you see, you think about these soldiers having to take a shift and be chained to the Apostle Paul. Now, <laughs> Paul knows that they're going to be with him for hours on end. So what does Paul do? What is Paul going to do in this moment? The very thing that got him in prison. Right? He starts talking about Christ with them. He starts sharing about God. He starts sharing about how the fulfillment of the plan of redemption happened in Christ. He starts talking about the sin of the world that has affected us all. And that the only way for humanity to be made right with a holy and just God is if a holy and just sacrifice happened in their place. And so Paul, he says, this is actually served to advance the gospel. Right? The whole imperial guard is hearing it's hearing about Christ. And you think about this. These were not people that you would just be able to walk up to and have a conversation with. Right? The public could not just go and do this. But you know who could? The guy that's chained to him. And Paul's saying, this is, actually, this is actually really good. I'm able to share Christ with these men that almost no other men in the world have access to right now. And so he starts talking about who God is with these these men, what Jesus has done, right? 
Paul was a preacher of the gospel. He loved to proclaim Christ. We'll even see that in the next few verses. But you know what happened? It sounds like many of these guards got saved. Many of these guards actually believed the gospel and were changed. Believed that they were sinners in need of a savior and that savior was Christ. If you jump over to chapter 4 verse 22 of Philippians, you'll, you'll see that... <clears throat> In the ending greeting of his letter, uh, Paul makes mention that the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This was likely a reference to these imperial guards, right? Without having to say, hey, all the guards are being saved. Because you know these letters were screened, right? And so Paul is basically saying to this church in Philippi and giving this report, me being chained to all these different men... God is using it and he's saving people to, unto himself. It even goes further if you think about that word advance. That God is using this situation to advance the gospel. That, it's the Greek word prokope. Now, <clears throat> it's a military term. And there's a reason why Paul's using this. It's a military term that means progress in an area that wasn't happening before. So in a military term, if you would say that you are advancing into new territory or you are advancing onto the enemy, that you are getting to a place that previously you had not been before. And so Paul is pointing this out saying the gospel is advancing in like a military way. It's going where it cannot go before. Just as me being able to talk to these men that no men have been able to talk to before about the gospel. It's serving to advance. Advance the gospel. So Paul is saying that suffering and circumstances can allow the gospel to go where it has not gone before. Maybe in our own life, maybe you think about it this way. If there is a circumstance that has happened to you, there's a season of life that you find yourself in, maybe it's going to open the door to conversations with family or friends that you did not think that you could have a conversation about the gospel about. Maybe it's with individuals at a hospital. Maybe it's with individuals at the workplace. Maybe it's in a jail cell like the Apostle Paul. But never think that your circumstances can thwart what God wants to do. And he may be using those to advance the gospel where it has not gone before. And maybe, and I think this is probably even more true, the more I think about this, the more I pray about this, is maybe suffering in this world advances the gospel in our own hearts and souls far more than we ever thought it would. Maybe suffering in our life advances the gospel into areas of our heart and soul that we didn't realize that the gospel had not gotten to yet. Maybe areas of your life that you didn't know that Jesus wasn't Lord yet until it was now being threatened. It was now under fire. And now you are seeing that, no, Jesus is Lord there too. Areas that maybe you didn't realize you weren't trusting him in until he brought you into that season of life. Church, let me ask you this. How many times in your walk with, with Jesus, and if, if, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, by the way, <clears throat> um, we just want you to understand who Christ is, and you're welcome to come for as long as you want without feeling like you have to believe something, but we want you to understand this gospel. But let me ask you this, Christian. How many times in your walk with Jesus Were you able to fully understand, maybe appreciate, maybe understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus a little bit better 
when things were going great in your life? Or maybe was it when things seemed really dark according to this world that all of a sudden the gospel became that much more brighter, that much more precious? Maybe the sovereignty of God and what he's done all of a sudden made you jump with joy because you knew that that's exactly what you need. Right? These hymns that we sing, these older hymns, they try to paint this picture, right? One of my favorites, the solid rock, which we're going to be singing here in a, hopefully next week. It says, when all, my, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. It's when everything else seems to give away, then I realize on solid, the solid rock of Christ is what you stand. So suffering or bad circumstances are not means to lose your joy. It's to reinforce your joy. It's to actually take the things that matter most to your world and bring them into clarity. Church, you know this, sometimes God lets you see that in the moment, but oftentimes how many, is it later on? Is it later on? Maybe, and here's the truth, God doesn't owe us at anything in this life to actually show us why he does the things he does. He is, he is God. We are not. He doesn't owe us anything, but I do believe that he delights to show, you know, his sons, his daughters, why he does things. But I tell you, it often does not come immediately. It comes when we are ready to understand it. And truthfully, for some things in this life, for some certain sufferings, certain tragedies, I believe that we won't know that ultimately until we're standing next to Jesus in all of eternity. And I have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with that. But here's the main point. Nothing happens in your life without purpose to the God who's created everything. Nothing happens in your life without purpose. Nothing is in vain when it comes to God moving. <clears throat> and here's another component of that. There might be even aspects of suffering that it's also more about the people that are watching you than you fully understanding it. Let me show you this. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is saying this the very imprisonment that he is in has actually served to help people be bold in the gospel. That the courage of one has become the courage of many. That one man standing and saying, no, I'm going to stand on the solid rock of Christ. When all other hopes are fading away, I'm going to stand upon that. And all of a sudden, all these other guys are saying, I want to stand on that too. I want to go and preach the gospel. I want to, because here's the thing, was the risk of being arrested still the same? Yeah. Probably even more so, right in the middle of where Paul is imprisoned. But Saul, Paul is saying that. My imprisonment has become a conduit to increase their boldness, to increase their trust in God, to increase their trust in the one who has saved them and believe that he's worth it, that everything that is to serve our Lord and Savior is worth it. They had confidence that Jesus was better than any other comfort in the world. 
and it came from the boldness of one brother. One brother. And, and I know this is true of my life. When I see somebody walking through something that I would never want to walk through personally, but yet I see them saying, you know, Jesus is enough. He's enough in this moment. And he's a good, and I know that. Even though that maybe I can't understand, I can't see exactly all the ways that he's moving, I know that he is enough. Man, it makes an impact on your life. Now, the words of Paul alongside even just church history, we know this to be true, that whenever persecution happens, whenever all of a sudden that there's a reality that if you want to hold on to the gospel, if you want to preach that, if you want to uphold that as the greatest treasure in your life, if it might cost you your life, do you know what happens to that message? It doesn't get dampened down. It seems to explode. All of church history has shown us this. Here's a, a relatively recent example in, in our own American history. 1956. 1956. Jim Elliott. Some of you guys know that name. He was a young 29-year-old. Um, <clears throat> he, he graduated from Wheaton College, and, and basically four of his friends that he graduated with, they decided, after understanding who Jesus was, understanding that there was people in this world that did not know the hope of the gospel, they wanted to go to an unreached people group. They wanted to be the boots on the ground to preach Christ just like the Apostle Paul was. And so what did they do? They wanted to go to this tribe that was outside of Ecuador known as the Alcas. The Alcas. And it was dangerous. They were known for being malicious people to outsiders. And they, so what did they do? They prepared. They prepared for years, learning the language, making a plan. They knew it was dangerous, but they still decided to go. Now, the first couple of days, they had this brief interaction with a couple of the different tribesmen. And it seemed like it was going okay. There was still this language barrier that they were trying to overcome. But only a few short days after that, a bunch of warriors from the Alcas tribe came to where they were camped out. <clears throat> and all four missionaries, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, Nate St. Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott, they were speared to death on those beaches, their bodies thrown into this river. Devastating, right? Absolutely devastating. How in the world, why would, how could God allow this to happen, right? Four young kids, like basically my age, right? Wanting to go and preach the gospel and within a week they are speared to death. What in the world, God, are you doing? How in the world could you allow this to happen? Well, Operation Reach to Alcas did not end on that day. In less than two years, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of, of Jim, one of the missionaries that was killed, their daughter, Valerie, who was three years old at the time, decided, along with Rachel Saint, who was a brother of the other missionary, decided, we want to go to the Alcas, too. And so they went. And you know what happened? Many of the Alcas came to know Christ. Many of them learned what it means to be forgiven of sin. Many, uh, by, the, by the very mouth of a widow, of someone that they just killed just a few years prior. So many Alcas became Christians. Many of the very men that actually killed those four missionaries became believers in Christ. In fact, even a few years later, get this, church. Uh, 
one of Nate Saint, who was one of the missionaries that was killed, one of their, his sons, Steve, a few years later decided that he wanted to go and join Elizabeth Elliot and join his aunt on the beach. And so he went and actually started to live with the Alcas, trying to figure out, okay, why is my family, why are these people, why are they doing this? He was not a Christian when he went. And you know what happened? Steve became a Christian. He heard the gospel. And you know who he heard it from? The men that killed his dad. And so Steve was baptized in the very river that his dad was killed by the men who killed his dad. You want to talk about redemption? You want to talk about full circle, that God can take the worst sinner, those that we think that would never come to faith and play a pivotal role in the life of countless others. You see, the gospel advances in ways that we never would ever think, right? You would not have drawn that picture up. You would not have drawn that plan up. Furthermore, Elizabeth Elliot, and you guys probably know her name because she ended up becoming a prolific writer and speaker where she would speak all the time about suffering, about all the time about her experience of what it meant to lose her husband, but yet so much desire that despite the suffering that she had, she knew that the gospel was advancing in the world in her own heart because of it. One historian points out that during his life, Jim Elliot, he longed for more people to become missionaries. In his death, however, he probably inspired more people to go to any to go to other countries, to share the love of Jesus far more than he ever would in life. And we're still talking about it today, right? That God advances his gospel no matter what. So suffering is never in vain, church. It's never in vain, and I hope you know that. <clears throat> All right, let's look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now, Paul's making a little bit of a transition here to from one type of suffering to another type of suffering. And here he's pointing out that sometimes church people, brothers in the faith can cause great harm. But look at the gospel mentality that Paul had. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So we don't know historically who these men were, like who are preaching Christ out of this envy and rivalry. And Paul points out that <clears throat> this envy and rivalry are, are, are shaping their heart. And they're doing this to actually afflict pain on him. So Paul acknowledges, hey, these, these brothers are hurting me. What they are saying, what they are doing, what they're saying about me, it's hurting me. It is absolutely hurting me. And he points out what they're doing is they're, they're speaking out of a heart of envy and rivalry. Two places where, according to Paul, love cannot coexist. Because envy is, what's envy? Envy is always being annoyed by the success of others. In rivalry, always believing that you can do better than that other person. And Paul is saying that this, these two attitudes actually are plaguing these men than they would ever know. 
and I hate this because I know this is, this is so easy for every single one of us, that we live in a world that how easy is it for envy and rivalry to sneak in? Remember, he's talking to, about Christians here. He's not talking about people outside the faith. He's talking about Christians, how envy and rivalry can come in. And we constantly, and here's why I see this, where one person is either constantly trying to rewrite the ministry that God has placed on them, saying that, no, I'm going to actually, instead of doing what you have called me to do, Lord, I'm just going to spend my time critiquing what you've called other people to do. And this is so dangerous, I think, particularly for people in vocational ministry like myself. But I think it goes beyond just the pulpit. I think every single one of us, regardless of our calling, there is a temptation for us to have an attitude of where we don't want to celebrate the work of others. We can be envious. We don't want them to succeed because we rather just critique or think that we can do better than them rather than actually focus in on what has God called you to do. He didn't, and by the way, None of us, God has called us just to our lives to be given to critiquing others. I can assure you of that. But yet, that seems, and it proliferates with, you know, social media, what have you, that it seems like every person in the world is tempted to use a platform for simply critiquing. And I don't think that's what God has for us. Something that it seems like Paul is clearly saying, this is bad. This is not good for you. But what does Paul do? What does Paul do? Even when that hurt comes, even when people misunderstand you, right? Because remember, these, these guys were not anti-Christ. It says that they were preaching Christ, but they were anti-Paul. So there was something with Paul that they were really trying to get at. And so what does Paul do? Verses 15 through 17, Paul makes mention of the proclamation of Christ three separate times in just a couple of verses. Why? Because Paul's identity was in the one who saved him. Paul's identity was in the bigger mission. Paul's identity was in the mission that God had given him and his ministry. And so just like they were doing, he didn't want to get caught up in the same game where he could then take what God had called him to do, put it to the side, and then say, I'm going to just focus in on what God has called other people to do. See, Paul wanted Christ preached no matter what. And so he rejoiced, it says, right? He rejoiced at the end of verse 18. He says, in that I will rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. Church, your joy is not tied to your circumstances. It's not even tied when those closest to you hurt you. It's not tied to any of those things. It's tied to the God who is unchanging, to the God who is saving, to the God who is working You see, Paul was more concerned about the glory of Christ than the glory of himself, which is hard. Why? Because we're glory-hungry people. We are. But Christ was more interested in the glory of God than even his relational health in this moment. This does not mean, now hear me on this, this does not mean that Paul did not care. He clearly cared. In so much he took time to talk about these men. But his ultimate goal was to point to what mattered. What do you want your life to point to? What message do you want your life to exalt more than anything else? 
Do you want it to exalt that everything's going well? Do you want it to exalt that you are pain-free or worry-free or trouble-free? And if you just do the right things, then bad things will not happen. Is that the story in which you want your life to stand upon? Paul's saying, no, no, no. I want it to proclaim Christ. I want it to proclaim the gospel. I want to proclaim the reality that for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin. So in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So church, when things happen, let's not be surprised. When things happen, does that mean that we can't talk about it? No, we can clearly talk about it. When things happen, does that mean that it won't be difficult? No, it might be actually very, very difficult. When things happen, does that mean that we cannot get prayer, that we cannot get support, that we cannot get comfort from the wisdom in the lives of those around us? We should absolutely want all those things. But when things happen, I do not want you to think that God is not present or that God has abandoned you. Charles Spurgeon, he has a better line about this than I do. He says this, he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. You see, Spurgeon's talking about the wave of suffering that can come, the wave of pain that can come, the things in this life that can feel like it's just going to throw you against the wall. But here's what Spurgeon's pointing out, that he knows in his experience from the word of God that when those things come, it does not mean that God has abandon you but it means that those waves might be driving you right to him and so he's learned to embrace those waves because they throw him to christ see spurgeon like paul knew that the nearness of god is often perceived in those darkest days that the nearness of god is often perceived in those darkest days so church when things happen It can serve to advance the gospel. It can get you to Christ. It will. And so I want you to take heart this morning. I want you to take heart because there might be things coming up this week that you never expected would happen. Because this is what's true in every single one of our lives. Either we are coming out of a season of suffering or we're about to enter into one. That seems like just the, the, the path of living in a sinful world that we live in. That we're either coming out of a season of suffering or we're going to about to enter into one. But the rock of ages, the anchor of our soul is true regardless of what spectrum, end of the spectrum you find yourself. And so as we just close out today, Christian, I hope you know that your pain or your suffering is not in vain. It is purposeful. You may not understand it, but it's purposeful. And if you're not a Christian... As I mentioned before, this is why we want you to become a Christian. Because outside of Christ, this world is as best as it gets. That there is actually no, no purpose. Ultimately, there's no, there are no greater days ahead of you. This might be the best that this life has to offer you. And I want that for you. I want you to know the one that has atoned for your sins. I want you to know the one that climbed up on the cross, even though that he was without sin and died a sinner's death, not because he deserved it, but because he loved you and decided to give himself as a ransom for many, the many who would believe. And I hope that's you today. Now let's go ahead and just end there. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll respond to that word.
Well, Father, I thank you. I thank you so much that we live in a world that despite uncertainties, despite pain, despite suffering, you are not absent from it. But it seems like, and help me believe this more and more, Lord, that your fingerprints are all over everything. That there's not one thing that will happen in my life that surprises you. And not one thing that happens in my life that cannot be used for your purposes and your glory and your good. And I know that everything in which you do in my life has meant me to get to you. It's meant for me to advance the gospel, whether it's in my own heart or it's in the heart of others. God, thank you for that promise. God, I pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.